You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome to In Her Shoes. I'm Stella Bugby, editor-at-large at New York Magazine. On this podcast, we talk to ambitious women about how they've come this far and where they're going next. Today's guest, Lindsay Peoples-Wagner, is the new editor-in-chief of The Cut. Her resume is impressive. Youngest editor-in-chief of a Condé Nast magazine when she headed Teen Vogue in 2018, author of the explosive 2018 piece on The Cut, Everywhere and Nowhere, What It's Really Like to Be Black and Work in Fashion. She's an ASME Next winner and a Forbes 30 Under 30 recipient. Last year, she founded the Black and Fashion Council with Sandrine Charles, a nonprofit dedicated to holding the fashion industry accountable for change. We spoke about her career trajectory, faith, and what she hopes to bring to the cut. I'm excited for you to listen. Hi, Lindsay. Hi. <laughs> um, thanks for coming on In Her Shoes and the Cut podcast. And um, it's really cool to be interviewing you in this new role as editor-in-chief of The Cut. <laughs> um, and it's, weird. I, it's, it's surreal, right? It's weird, right? It's cool. It's really cool. <laughs> um, for, for background, for people who don't know, um, I was the editor-in-chief of The Cut. Now Lindsay is the editor-in-chief of The Cut. And we wanted to do this episode of In Her Shoes specifically as a kind of way to introduce listeners to Lindsay and like get a sense of what, uh, how she lives her life as a new woman. And, you know, like on this show, we talk a little bit about, um, management style and philosophy and also just work-life balance. And, um, so I'm going to start off by asking Lindsay how it has been to start a new job when you can't meet anybody in person. I knew you were going to start out with a very large question. (laughs) um, Yeah, I mean, starting a job over Zoom is really hard. Um, And I think, you know, just where everyone is at in life, their mental health, their family, it's just every everything has changed. And so I think um, I've spent just a lot of time thinking about how I can be more grateful and self-aware of my own life. And then also just having empathy for people, because I just think it's been, I don't know, it's it's just been hard for a million different reasons. Um, I mean, this is the longest I've ever gone without seeing my family um, in my entire life. And so I think it's just been a journey for everyone. And I think I've been trying to keep that in mind in, in starting a new job and having conversations with people over Zoom that would usually be in person and I think usually be in a a different uh, headspace. For listeners who aren't totally familiar with you, you're only 30. 
you're at the helm of you know, a major media brand. You just came from another media, media brand, Teen Vogue. So tell us a little bit about that trajectory from maybe even from the beginning, like internships and all the way up. Yeah. I mean, hindsight is always twenty twenty, but I don't, the journey has been tumultuous is my word. It's not really, I think interesting. Yes. But I think it's just been a roller coaster of a lot of different things. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do in college. Um, I spent a lot of time just like liking being creative, but I didn't really connect the dots. Um, a lot of my childhood was spent like with my grandmother. I would we would make quilts and pillows and rugs and I would draw a lot. Um, but I didn't ever think that it was going to be something that I would be able to make into a career. I remember my biggest aspiration. Um, I've always journaled a lot was like, maybe one day I'll own a boutique in Wisconsin. Like that's the big goal. Um, and I was like part-time working at Payless. Like that was like the pinnacle for me. Um, I went to a smaller liberal arts school and and I fought my parents on it because I had applied to all these bigger schools and my parents were like, you're not ready. Like, you don't know what you want to do. You're not about to waste our money or our time. And they were, I, my mom sat me down and she was like, I just think you need to be at a place that is going to give you a little bit more attention on like what you really want to do. And I don't think you're going to get that if you go to one of these big schools, you're just going to end up getting a degree and not actually think about like, what is my purpose in life? Um, and so I just ended up choosing a school that I had gone to on a, on a college tour that I wasn't even really passionate about, but I just, I, I don't know, it was weird. I went there and I liked the people. And so I was like, okay, well, I'll choose this school. It's a little closer to home. This, that's where I ended up going. And it was a school in the middle of Iowa surrounded by cornfields. And, um, I just got really, really blessed with two professors who took the time to spend on me. And they were just really invested in me, invested in trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And one of my professors was the one who saw um, a post about a Teen Vogue internship. And she was like, I think this is what you need to try. And I think um, you really, you know, you really just have a voice and there's something inside of you that I think you need to figure out. And I remember telling her, I was like, I'm not going to get this. Like, I loved the hills. I loved girlfriends. I love Sex and City. But I was like, they don't know who I am. I'm literally in the Midwest. Like, the Midwest is, you know, it's Uggs. It's not like it's Chanel. And so I think that for me, it just felt very far off. But I happened to get that internship. And from there, I was hooked. And I just started doing a lot of different internships. Um, I went to L.A. one summer because I thought I wanted to do celebrity styling, which I do not want to do. Um, I went overseas and studied abroad because I was like, maybe I want to work at a design house. Do not want to do that. Um and so when I graduated, I mean, I didn't have a job when I graduated, which was also a weird thing. Everybody at school was like, oh, I got a job at this bank or I got a job doing this. And I remember telling my sister, I was like, oh, I'm such a loser. Like, I don't have a job. I don't know what I'm going to do. And um, my sister and I are very similar, but she is uh, way more, I think, just type A than me. So when she left school, she had a six-figure job offer. Like she was like on it. And I was like, I have no money. I have no job. This is crazy. I ended up just, you know, emailing a bunch of different people that I had interned with. And a couple months later, somebody from Teen Vogue had reached out and was like, oh yeah, like we have a freelance job open in the closet, $9 an hour. I was like, great, take it. Um, and 
I think the biggest hurdle that first couple years was just I wanted to be in fashion so bad, but I had to work three jobs. I was just too broke. And I just felt like every, you know, everything we do is subjective of like who's cool, who's worthy, who's on brand, like all these things. And all I could afford was some Zara and some Gap. And I just felt like I'm never going to be good enough for these people because I don't have the money to sustain the image around it. And it was just really exhausting. Like I would go to Teen Vogue during the day. I would freelance for shoots at night or change mannequins at the DKNY store. I or do a lot of odd end thing or like copywriting stuff at night. On the weekends, I always waitress because I made good tips for brunch. Everybody gets drunk and pays you well. So like that was what I did for a long time. And I just felt like, I don't know, I just felt like it was too exhausting to keep up. And so um, I remember talking to a couple people about going to style.com. Um, and I just was like, I just don't want to be pigeonholed into like being in this closet or trying to be a stylist. I can't be broke for the rest of my life. And my parents are really supportive. Like I never like wanted for anything in my childhood or anything. It's just like when you come to New York, the idea of wealth is so crazy different than what it is in other places that it was just this huge gap of like, I've never been in a situation where I felt like I didn't have what I needed um, to to excel or to succeed. And so um, I went to style.com because I was like, I just think I need to get some different skills. Like, I, I can't keep doing this. And I wanted to write more and do stuff like that. So I went there. Um, I had an amazing boss, Rachel Wang, who's, who's a good friend. Um, and that was a really... I think pivotal situation for me because she was a huge mentor for me of where I wanted to go in the industry um, and how I wanted to kind of craft my voice. And um, she was the one who actually told me about the the job at the cut. And she was the one who I think just connected a lot of dots for me around that. So you've now mentioned you've had like two, two, two professors and, and one really pivotal boss who redirected you or like invested in you was that how did that shape your idea of being a boss actually like now that you've had those two experiences and it sounds like you knew yourself well enough to to know that you needed a smaller environment and somebody to be invested in you are those lessons that you're going to take forward now yeah absolutely I mean I think paying it forward because the People have really spent so much time, I think, investing in me, and I'm always really blown away by that because I always felt like, why are people even bothering? Like, I'm not going to have anything in this industry. And I really felt, I, I always feel that sense of gratitude around that because I felt like um, just the odds were stacked against me. And even with Rachel, I think one of the biggest things she taught me was like, you know, when is your time for something um, it will be your time and it doesn't have to happen in the time that you think, but also just because someone says no to you doesn't mean necessarily that you'll never get past or move to a different situation. Um, I was working for her probably for six months and a shopping like market role came up that was like specific to e-com and, and different things. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so broke. Like, I really hope that she promotes me. I really need this job. 
And I remember I took the call in the closet and I was crying to her because she was she was like, I can't give you this job. But honestly, I'm not giving you this job because I think that you need to be doing other things. And I think like you really need to be like doing your own shoots or like writing bigger features. She was like, I just don't think this job is for you and you're going to get stuck just like writing shopping stuff. And I don't really think you should be doing that. And so she was like, I honestly like if, you know, I think you should stay. I will help you. I will mentor you. But I don't think this is the right thing. And I, there's someone else that I think is better for this role at this point. How how was that to hear that? Was that painful? <laughs> oh, I cried on the phone. I was crushed. Also because I was just really broke. And I was like, I need insurance. Like, I can't keep living this life. So that was also why. But I, I don't know. I remember I called my parents and they're like, look, like, you know, we'll help you if you need to, if you need to move situations, like if you want to come back home, you can always come back home. And that was always in the back of my mind, like, should I go back to Wisconsin or not? And um, I decided to stay and and I decided to, you know, just stay underneath her. And she was the one, I don't know, that also changed my idea of what mentorship was, because I always thought mentorship was like somebody that you would maybe just come to of like, hey, I'm applying for this job. Help me get it. Like, help me, help me. And not necessarily yes person, but I, I just had it differently in my mind. And I think her becoming my mentor and saying no just flipped a lot for me of like, oh, wait, like she was she was right. And that's just as helpful, um, even more helpful, I think. And yeah, I mean, she was the one who then came to me one day and was like, hey, I heard about this job. And like, I think this is actually the right role for you. And we'll give you like the growth that you need. Embracing nature is more than just going for a walk now and then. It's reconnecting with the elements. It's harnessing the power of natural ingredients. It's putting the earth first. For over 50 years, Nature's Sunshine has been sharing the healing power of nature as they work towards a healthier planet. Their manufacturing facility is 100% powered by sunlight, and they divert 95% of waste away from landfills. If you're looking for a sustainably made herbal supplement, you might want to check out Nature's Sunshine and their new power line. Power Beats are a superfood performance booster that can help enhance both performance and blood flow. And Power Meal is a satisfying protein-packed superfood shake that comes in sustainable packaging made with nearly 40% post-consumer recycled plastics. Now that's something you can feel good about. This Earth Month, you can enjoy 25% off your first order with code NSP. Just go to naturesunshine.com. That's naturesunshine.com and use code NSP for 25% off your first order. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L 
V-A-N-29.com. And um, so when you and I worked together, I've said this publicly, I'll say it again. It was very, (laughs) (laughs) it was very obvious to me right away that um, you had a sense for what you wanted to do way beyond the role that you had originally come in to do, which was more of a market fashion role. And you wasted very little time, you know, coming into my office and saying like, this is, this is what we should be doing. And and this is what I would like to do. And these are the people I'd like to cover. Um, you know, and I was, I was very excited about that. What gave you the confidence to do that? And were there people you were talking to outside of our organization or, you know, like who beyond just the, obviously the community of the cut was very, very open and kind of flat, but not everybody marched into my office and said like, I'd like to do this, you know? <laughs> Honestly, the, I, I just felt comfortable enough to talk. It wasn't like anybody was talking to about it in the office or outside the office. I just felt comfortable enough to come to you and say, I want to do more and I have the hunger to do more. Um, I also just feel like because I've had such a desperation of, I have to make it like, I have to, I have to be better than like the people that have come before me. I have to do this. It just made, has always just made me, I think a lot more ambitious than other people. And I don't know. It's weird. Cause now, like when I've, when I've had conversations with people that I used to work with or whatever, I realized I may have come off as like annoying to some people, but I wasn't trying to be like, I, I sincerely felt like if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to be busting my ass, like I need to be making great work. Um, Talk to me a little bit more about that idea of, um, I need to be better than the people that came before. I need to, you know, I think that your work is infused with a deep sense of mission. Can you elaborate a little bit about that so that people who aren't familiar with it have an idea of what you mean? Yeah, I think it's always been, when I decided to be in fashion, I just now remember a lot of moments of wanting so badly to be seen in covers, in movies, in television, um, in a lot of different ways. I think a lot of, you know, when we see even like, you know, covers of magazines, I remember putting all of them up on my wall and my mother having a lot of conversations with me about idolizing a lot of these people who didn't really have a connection with who I was. And even if magazines did put a woman of color or specifically a black woman on the cover, it was like the same cycle of a Beyonce, Rihanna, Viola Davis, et cetera. And, um, I just felt like, you know, if I'm going to have to do all of this and I really want to be in this industry, I have to change it. And that was a conversation that my mom had with me very early on. Like nobody in my family is doing anything creative, but um, they always had really frank conversations with me about my purpose and intention. And my family means the world to me. And I think knowing that they have worked so hard to make a life for me really pushed me to make sure that I used this gift, this life responsibly. Um, And I think about that a lot. I mean, my I was really close with both of my grandmothers um, who are no longer alive. And my grandmother down South passed last year. And 
my grandmother, my mom's mom, um, she passed when I was in college and both of them just worked so hard. And I always felt like I have to honor that. Like I have to push beyond what I think I'm even capable of doing. Um, my grandmother that I spent a lot of time with in Wisconsin, she worked at a steel factory, but she was like incredibly into fashion. Obviously most Black people who grew up in church, you're into the idea of Sunday best. And she would just dress like crazy good. She would take me to, you know, all these different places to make her clothes. Um, and I don't know. I just felt like these people have have done so much for me. Like, I have to honor them um, with what I'm doing and push past when I want to go home or when I feel like this is crazy to, like, work all these jobs that I'm still broke and have a negative bank account. Um, so that's honestly where a lot of it has come from. And how do you balance that ambition that you have and and that drive that you have with other people and their needs to, you know, self-regulate in terms of like, this is something I often grapple with as a, as a worker, just, you know, I'm, I feel very driven and it's sometimes hard for me to recognize other people's boundaries in the, in the same way that um, you know, I, I'm, I'm so excited and I want everybody to be so excited, but everybody's coming at things from a different perspective. And now that you're kind of leading, we've now led two big things. How do you balance that? Yeah, that's hard. I mean, I, I'm always going to be the, I always feel like I, and I said to so many people, like, it's fine for me to be the most ambitious person in the room. Um, because I'm always going to have the really, big idea that's going to make the project way more annoying and time consuming. Um, But I try honestly not to just bulldoze my opinion. I think that's been the big thing and let people say kind of what they want to do and also ask people like, you know, do you feel like this is possible with your bandwidth and where you are right now? Um, And that was a lesson I really had to learn um, when I started managing people because I would just have all these like huge ideas that were great ideas, but it's like, what can people actually accomplish? Um, What can people actually do? And obviously you want to push people as a manager, but you also don't want to invade their own personal boundaries. And like, obviously, you know, everybody has a life and other things going on. And so I think it's been me kind of waiting to say what I want to do, but also then checking in with people about like, well, how do you feel about that with your bandwidth and where you're at with all these other stories and things you're working on? How do you check your own ambition sometimes? Like, how do you <laughs> how do you reconcile with checking yourself against the organization or the you know the confines in which you're working? I mean, I go to therapy every week consistently. <laughs> I do. Um, I, I that's think like, that's I, like something that comes up all the time on these interviews. I'm like, you know, curious about how people balance the mental health aspect of it. I think it's two things for me. I, I'm a person of faith and I think that faith really does an incredible job of grounding you and making you realize it's just made me a lot more intentional and to not seek validation from very fickle things. And that validation, I think, come from inside. Um, but combined with therapy, yeah, I think therapy has been great because as a manager, I think it can be hard to not project your own things on other people in conversations. And so I've made sure to 
go every week, even though I sometimes don't feel like it, or maybe I feel like I don't have anything to say, just to make sure that when I'm having conversations with people that I'm not projecting like things that I haven't worked through or another conversation I had with a friend or another conversation I had with a different employee, whatever it is. Um, Cause I feel like I could just be a little bit more clear and direct with people when I'm on a good routine with that. What do you want our listeners new to you to know about you and your plans for the cut? Oh, that's a good question. I think, you know, I mean, it, the cut is iconic and everyone knows that. And I think we're just trying to figure out, I think what this next era is going to be. Um, And I think for me, it is, you know, bringing on a lot of different voices and contributors. And I think um, making work that, you know, I think you would be really proud of and that I'm really proud of. And so um, that's all I'm really trying to do. And I mean, I, I, it's funny. I do think um, a lot of times people, I have this internal pressure of like, I need to be excellent. But I also think um, as a woman of color, you often feel like you just have to be better than other people and excel past, you know, what other people think you can do. And so um, I always try to ask people for patience because I think also when people see me, they're like, night and day, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. And it it's a little stressful for people to have such high expectations for me to, I think, change everything. Because I'm also the person that people come to about, you know, injustice issues in the industry or, you know, hey, I'm trying to figure this out and to, to make this business more inclusive. And so it's not just one thing. Um, and so I think that pressure can feel like a lot. And I think... Um, a little patience would be nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, so you launched this very explosive story in the pages of New York Magazine at the cut about being Black in fashion, which I think no one would argue blew open a conversation that needed to be had and that you and I had been talking about for a long time. And like, and it just changed your life. It changed, I think, the whole conversation in the industry. And then, so tell me, we can talk a little bit about that. But also, you took that moment and you built on it. And I think you started a nonprofit, um, the Black and Fashion Council. So tell us a little bit about like the impetus behind that story, the opportunities that came from it, and how you kind of capitalized on those. Yeah, I mean... I I just remember having the conversations with you really early on of like, I really want to do something about the fact that people aren't, I think, feeling included in these different spaces. And um, the timing of things is always so perfect in hindsight, because I remember when I came to you with the idea, we talked about it and you were like, yeah, I don't think it's ready. Like, I don't think it's the right time. And you were so right. And when, when it finally was time to do it, it was the industry was so different because I think people were finally actually ready to have a lot of the conversations, which I think is is a key part of this because the idea of diversity industry isn't new, but I think people being just like receptive and finally accepting that there is a problem, I think has has been a big shift. And so um, also just the fact that when a lot of people have written about the lack of inclusivity in fashion, a lot of it has been rooted in narratives from assistants or interns, which then kind of just gotten written off because it's like, well, you're young, 
you're only complaining because you're young and you're starting out. Whereas like by the time I had actually written the piece, there were a lot more senior level people in the industry that were people of color that were saying like, this is still a problem for us. And so I think that conversation really made it a bigger deal because it was like, well, if you've been in the industry for decades and you're still dealing with all these issues, what hope is there for younger people of color to want to be in the industry? And like, why should any of us stay? Um, and it, I mean, yeah, I mean, that piece just changed so much in, in my life because I think, um, it just gave me a sense of conviction that I didn't have before. And I remember talking to you about this of like, there were a lot of people of color who told me not to write it and to not to do the piece. And I was going to say it was, it was, I remember that summer when we were having the initial conversations about it and, and you were starting to interview people and running into a lot of fear and resistance. And I think generally fear about what an article like that might do to someone's career or to the people participating in its career. And then as people started to come on the record and that started to get other people to come on the record, it was very exciting to watch you start to have these more really intense conversations. I mean, I remember talking to you one day afterward, you came into my office, you were like, these, these conversations are a lot. It's like, I'm almost like I'm having to be a therapist. Yeah. Oh yeah. It definitely felt like therapy, but I was, I was really scared, but it also gave me conviction at the same time, which I had never really thought about before the piece. And I just remember like, you know, people that I really admired telling me that I was going to be blacklisted and that I would never have a job. And that wasn't something for me to take lightly because I was like, okay, does that mean I'm going to have to go back to waitressing after this? Like that was actually really detrimental to to my mental health. And I think um, when, I mean, I remember when the piece came out, uh, my husband and I, Dre, we were in Mexico. I wasn't even here because I was so scared. And I was like, I just need to go because I don't know what people are going to say. I think, I don't know what people are going to feel about this. And I've put my blood, sweat and tears into this, but like this could just go wrong. And um, I mean, it obviously ended up being well-received, but I just remember it gave me this weird sense of like calm and and peace that I honestly had only felt like before that, the day of my wedding, which was like this weird sense of, of calm that even if this, like, I just remember thinking to myself, like, even if this is the last piece that I do, I'm really proud of this piece. So I I have I remember I had my phone off most of the day and then I turned my phone on because I was like, I don't even really need I don't think I need to hear other people um, and their opinions about this. And um, when I turned it on, I had a bunch of text messages from you and um, and I looked on Instagram and I was like, oh, shit. Um, you had text messages from me that day. I don't remember. What, yeah, what were they? <laughs> I no, they were they were you were just like, oh my gosh, like everybody, like do you see all these people are talking about it and da 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 and I was and then I was like, oh okay, let me look on Instagram. You know when you're like scared about something and then you don't you are like should I go on social media or not because I don't know what people are saying about it. I do um, know that yes. <laughs> <laughs> so your 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 text was the the good guard for me of like okay, it's safe to to come outside. Yeah, yeah. I remember being very, very nervous in general yeah. around that whole piece. Yeah. And I also I also knew that you publishing that piece meant I was going to lose you <laughs> as, as a collaborator because I, 
I knew, I knew, I knew that it was going to be um, the of such a major piece, and I think I was less scared that it would put your career to an end. I was more scared that it meant that someone was going to poach you immediately, and that's exactly <laughs> what happened. <laughs> and I remember you came to my office and you were like, "You're like I have to talk to you," and I was like. Oh God, I already know. What is it going to be? Who's offering your job? You know, and it was immediate, right? It was very, very soon afterward. Yeah, but I, it never crossed my mind that that was even a possibility. And I remember at that point in my life, I just kept being like, okay, by 35, I have to be a fashion director. Like I have to make that happen. That was my biggest aspiration at that time. So it honestly did not occur to me. And and in my mind, I was like, I'll just stay here until one day I can get promoted. That was not even in my mind. Um, but yeah, isn't I mean. That, then, isn't that funny how we have these expectations for ourselves and we put dates on them in our minds and then life just intervenes and we have to completely readjust our whole sense of our expectations for ourselves. Oh yeah, I was, I was not prepared, didn't have the thought. Like I didn't even, I I literally didn't even dream about it. Cause I just was like, this is the furthest that I'm going to go. So I just need to try to like, to do my mantra of I'm going to be a fashion director. And that's all that I cared about. So it was, yeah, it was, it was very, very strange, but I mean, the teen Belk opportunity came and it felt like the weirdest serendipity um, and obviously a really great opportunity. And what was that opportunity that was to be what? Tell us. To be to be editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue, um, where I'd started out interning and worked at straight out from college. So, I mean, that was, you know, it just wasn't something that had ever occurred to me was even an opportunity. And I think for a lot of different reasons, but I mean, mainly because at that point, I really knew, like, this is who I am in this industry. And I don't, and I think it's going to be really hard to be able to get a job being this kind of person because I was very adamant about, I'm not going to code switch. I'm not going to assimilate. I'm not going to change who I am for this industry. And it wasn't like, it wasn't coming from a sense of like resentment or anger towards the industry. It just really, to me, felt like if we're all going to say that we care about diversity and inclusivity and equity, then I should be able to be who I am. What's an example of a moment where you felt somebody might've asked you to code switch, but you said, no, I'm not doing that. Every black woman that I've encountered in fashion has had someone like say something about their hair or feel like their hair was just, it's just such a loaded topic for every black woman. Um, but I think even something as simple as like, I remember I was in pre-pandemic, I was in the elevator with a with a black senior leader and I was like playing some music on my phone and then like he had some he had some of it on his phone or whatever and so another executive came into the elevator and he quickly turned it off and was like, turn it off, turn it off. And I was like, no, why? I mean First of all, trap music is great. If you don't like trap music, that's totally fine. But <laughs> trap music is great. And I'm not going to apologize for listening to it. But also, I think, you know, there's this idea of when you get to a certain level that you can't like certain things a part of culture or like, you know, that you can only really talk about prestigious things. And I just feel like that pressure is constantly put on people of color, whereas I don't feel like 
I need to change my language or who I am to be excellent at being an editor. And after the article came out, when you started the Black and Fashion Council, how did that come together? It's a nonprofit, right? Nonprofit, yeah. And um, basically, we, well, it's nonprofit and there's an LLC division as as well, um, which is only complicated in, in terminology, but just because people have also just come to us for, it, it really started out as this small idea, which Again, I don't know. I don't know why I thought that. But at the time, I was like, <laughs> we basically started to have conversations. We, as in my co-founder, Sandrine Charles, um, she has her own PR firm. And basically all the people that were in the Black and Fashion article, we started to have Zooms. And we started to just have these massive Zooms with hundreds of people of color in the industry talking about, okay, George Floyd has been murdered. Breonna Taylor's been murdered. We all have a platform. What are we going to do? And I had, I remember um, I had gone for a, a job interview and a person had told me, you know, I think that you're great, but you're too Malcolm X. And it's really stuck with me because I, I don't actually don't find this offensive. It's really stuck with me because I, I think that it's important for me to always use this platform, use this gift to make it better for other people of color. And we just started talking about what would be possible because with the article, we've had all these conversations. And for me, it's like, I need to be a ladder and help other people of color out. But how do I be a ladder if we're not holding people accountable? Because I can help people all I want, but like if they're not actually put in positions of success and actually put in a place that understands what an equitable work environment is, this is not actually not going to get better. And so it really was about taking that to the next level. And we decided to partner with the Human Rights Campaign and create a corporate equity index on racial and ethnic inclusivity in fashion and beauty spaces, um, which has never been done before. And um, I just felt like it was really necessary to not, not, come from a place of cancel culture because I don't feel like it's productive, not come from this place of saying like, you're doing this wrong, you get a 20%, whatever, but actually giving people the tools and resources to say, okay, so like, here's how I actually need to make sure that these policies are being put into practice. Here's how I need to challenge how we define who's someone that is worthy of gifting, cover, platform, opportunity, all of that. And I'm really proud of the work that we've been able to do, the opportunities we've been able to give to people of color. Um, and it just turned into a lot bigger thing because at first we it was, you know, 20 companies. And then we had companies starting to come to us about consulting things, which is obviously that's not nonprofit. Or we need help of, you know, figuring out an opportunity for young designers. So we were able to partner with IMG this past couple seasons um, and they basically let us curate a space for 10 designers here in New York and five in LA. And it's, I don't know, it's, it's the best kind of work to do because yeah, they get, you know, picked up at Brown's and, and picked up at different stores and like actually get a shot in the industry that they haven't been able to before. And so it's, it's interesting because the question that people usually ask me is like, why did you choose to do it? But it's like, I don't really, it hasn't ever been a conscious decision. It's just no one else is doing it. And I feel a sense of responsibility. So then I end up doing it. Lindsay, that's awesome. And thank you for joining us. 
and um, I'm so personally excited to see what you do with this project. And I'm so excited for the Cut listeners to get to know you. And thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. That was fun. In Her Shoes is edited and produced by Camilla Salazar. Our lead producer is Jasmine Aguilera and Nishat Kerwa and Stella Bugby. That's me, are our executive producers. The Cut is made possible by the excellent team at New York Magazine. Subscribe today to support their work at thecut.com slash subscribe. I'm Stella Bugby. Thanks for listening. Celebrate Earth Month this April by harnessing the power of Mother Nature with Nature's Sunshine's new power line. From Power Greens with over 200 plant-based nutrients to support gut health and foundational nutrition to Power Beats that can improve performance and blood flow. Not to mention Power Meal, which delivers plant-based calories from Whole Foods to help keep you both energized and feeling satisfied throughout the day. This Earth Month, you can enjoy 25% off your first order with code NSP. Just go to naturesunshine.com. That's naturesunshine.com and use code NSP for 25% off your first order.